This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree, rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. This is Forbes Under 30 on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Goldblum. On the Forbes Under 30 podcast, we talk to young innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs. Today, we have Matthew Ramirez with us. He's the CEO and one of the founders of Write Lab, a company that helps teachers teach students how to write. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Steve. I'm going to just jump in and say I have friends who are teachers, and I've watched them grade papers, and it's not pretty. And I've helped them grade papers, and that's less pretty. So let's start from there with you giving a definition of, of Write Lab. Well, Write Lab started with me as a teacher. And I should probably go back even before grading the papers to the goal of teachers. It's really about helping students relax into their own articulateness. And that's not an easy thing to accomplish. And when you get a stack of papers, you want to respond to each one of those thoughtfully. You want to make sure that those students' voices are heard and that you can give them clear directions for how to better communicate themselves. But the task, when you start with that first paper, you're ready, you're enthusiastic, but as you get to four, five, six, seven, you see the same issues over and over again. Um, You start to become a little bit more curt when you're writing those responses. And when you return those papers to the students... You mean annoyed or curt? Uh, I, well, Kurt, you, said Kurt. you said annoyed, Kurt, yeah. but, but certainly you become annoyed, <laughs> you become frustrated, um, you want to, you start using shorthand, you stop talking to the student and you start marking the student. And when you get the papers back to them, they already have other assignments to work on. They already got a grade for this one. So there's not much incentive for them to continue working on it or to respond to your comments or to implement your comments. So all of that thoughtfulness really doesn't go very far. There's a great quote from you that I didn't understand, but I knew it was great. And so I'm going to throw it back at you. you, While you were teaching at Berkeley, you said you realized you could capture 90% of what you were teaching algorithmically. So break that down for me. So in the revision process, there are really three parts. There's pre-writing, which is let me just throw my ideas there. Let me brainstorm. Let me figure out what I'm going to write about. Then there's this big revision layer where you're tinkering and you're rewriting sentences and you're moving things around. And this is really the meat of the revision. There's about 75% in there. And then there's the last layer, which is just grammar proofreading. So what I found was that most tools were only capturing that last piece. Drafts were simply not ready to be read because they didn't know how to tackle this meaty part of the revision process. So I was working in the School of Information and the Department of English doing coursework in both and was working with a lot of syntactic parsers, algorithms, right around this area. So I saw an opportunity to solve my own problem by running a a simple test, which was, what if I auto-generate feedback for students? Let me see if they notice that it's auto-generated. And what I found was that the students showed up to office hours in droves because they'd never received so much and so specific of feedback. And then that's when I thought, let me try to 
do something a little bit more with this. I need a larger test set than 20 students in a class. And then you realize that the office hours, you're sort of streamlining the process, right? Because then the office hours become more efficient and you can get those high level comments that you can't get at when you're curt or annoyed and giving the same basic feedback in the essay and the writing, right? That's absolutely right. Normally, office hours had been an opportunity for embarrassment where the student comes in and you kind of look at each other and they want to know know if you're going to punish them further than the grade you've already given them. Um, But what this does is it stages an opportunity for conversation in office hours because they know what issues they've had to work through multiple times before their draft was ready to be read by an instructor. And now you can just talk about writing as choices rather than as why did you start on this so late or what were you, know, what were you thinking, et cetera, um, because now you have a digital record of their writing over time. So I, I read this about your program, too, that it may not really understand the writing, but it can make you a better writer. That's right. And that's because most of the ticks, most of the problems that writers have fall into a fairly small set of categories. Um, and so without understanding everything about the world, we can still address those areas. So can you talk about the Socratic approach to write lab that you sort of, you don't, you don't label a phrase as wrong, but you're asking lots of questions, you know, would this sentence be stronger or weaker if you dropped this adverb, et cetera? Right. So I've, I've always found the most effective teachers to be the ones that listen carefully. Um, and we've tried to develop software that will ask you questions without being too presumptive. Um, so the Socratic method in there is saying, if you make a claim like a certain policy reduces crime, we want to ask you the question that is most appropriate for the claim that you've made. So we will ask you something like, to what extent does that policy reduce crime? We want to prompt you to be more mindful about your writing, to gather more data, more evidence for your claims, but also to consider little things, little ways of phrasing, little parts of emphasis, like you mentioned, whether or not you're going to remove an adverb and how that actually might affect your readers trying it both ways and reading those sentences aloud to yourself. Well, I know that you put the president's inauguration speech through WriteLab. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. What we're going to do now is a fun experiment. I think we're going to be able to actually play quotes from the inauguration, some of the speech. We'll play a line from the speech, and then I will read to you what Wright Lab said. January 20th, 2017, will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Wright Lab said... Who will remember January 20th, 2017 is the day the people became the rulers of this nation again? Fair, fair question. Trump said every decision on trade, on taxes, on on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. Right Lab said instead of using the passive voice with every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families, try converting your verb into the active voice by specifying who will make every decision to benefit American workers and American families. Finally, Trump said there should be no there fear. should be no fear. We are protected and we will always be protected. Right Lab says who will always protect us. 
Matt, is this is this what we can expect from our politicians now? You're going to be holding their feet to the fire with Right Lab. You know, I, I think it really starts with students um, because students are the ones that are going to be reading. They're going to be the ones that are listening. They're going to be the ones that are processing the words of our politicians or any other adult figureheads in their lives. Um, and it's for them to make sense of what's actually reasonable, what's logical, who's accountable for what, because every sentence has some embedded or implicit accountability. The trick as a, as a reader or as a teacher of writing is to really parse out that meaning um, and pay attention closely to the words around us. I think it's never been more vital to pay that close attention. We see fake news, we see people who aren't paying attention too much to the sources of the news they read. And I think the ability to look at a sentence, not even knowing where it's coming from, and think about what are the implications of this? What is the world gonna look like if this is true? What if we implement the things that this is suggesting and really start to think counterfactually about what parts of this are gonna lead to what other uh, conclusions or results. So yes, I, I'd say simply, this is what we can expect is that we're gonna be holding people accountable, we're gonna be holding readers accountable, we're gonna be holding writers accountable. And that is, I think, the great digital promise, something that didn't really, that hasn't really existed because reading so closely and doing the Socratic thing just takes so much time and so much energy to do on your own. The program is, is constantly upgrading right? Like you, the program is learning as well. That's right. So we have two layers of learning. The first is the kind of learning that you would expect to affect every user, everybody in the system, which means we get more submissions, we get more papers, we get more people choosing things, whether or not a revision works. Then we have the learning that happens for you as the individual writer. So as you make decisions about your writing, we will tailor the comments to what has been effective for you in your revision process. So if something just didn't work and it continuously doesn't work, we're gonna lower that probability of returning that to you in the future. But here's the caveat. You know, a lot of people have asked, well, couldn't you just be reinforcing bad habits if people don't want to see these comments or they don't know how to implement them? Well, we respect the, communi the community of writers that you're participating in. So if you are writing for a tech blog we will look at all the tech bloggers in your space, look at the choices they've made, see what's collectively important for that context, for that type of writing, and weigh that into your choices as well and the probability of that suggestion that you ultimately get. Not many people, Matthew, sit at the intersection of the humanities and computational linguistics, which is where you sat. That's correct. So... What do you enjoy most now? I mean, now that you have Write Lab off the ground and, and you're still working on it and making changes, do you feel that getting this business off the ground has taken you away from the classroom? How do you balance the two? So I found myself in a different kind of educational role, um, which is that – so I'm no longer in the classroom, but I'm still writing for teachers. Uh, I still write blogs for teachers. I'm still – visiting teachers in their classrooms, trying to understand what exactly are some of the issues, especially in K-12, that teachers are dealing with, what sorts of demands are on them. And so that, for me, is a constant learning process, and I get to be sort of intermittently within the classroom. I also see this other educational role that I, I hadn't envisioned and I didn't really realize would be such, a, such an integral part of building the business, 
which is that content is still everything and the kinds of content that we put out there are we're going to or what are going to educate people about our product educate people about our market educate people about what the possibilities are for their schools and classrooms and that's a lot of teaching power it's part of the same thing actually of people disseminating news all over the place it's how do we use this content responsibly how do we use it pedagogically um, and how do we use it in a way that's going to be respectful of all these professionals' time, those professionals that are reading it? So I would say that I have at least as heavy of an educational burden as when I was teaching a few sections at Berkeley. For people who want to add teachers who want to get involved and access this now, what platforms are you working on right now and, and, and where can they find you? They can go directly to writelab.com and teachers get free accounts. Um, we do sell school licenses. Uh, we also integrate with almost all the major learning management systems so they can seamlessly integrate us with their current workflow without having students needing to log in again. We close two large partnerships, one domestically and one in Japan. The one domestically was with Pearson, um, and then the one with Japan is, is a company called Zikai, uh, and we're working on more partnerships now. But right now, the easiest thing to do is just to go to writelab.com. We also release, though, a free Chrome extension, which they can download and we'll follow them all over the web. So if you're writing emails and you want to be uh, held accountable, then you, can, you should download our free Chrome extension. And can you just give us a sense of your background? You grew up bilingual, right? How did that impact your work and your study? So I grew up in South Texas, about 20 minutes from the Mexican border, and my Grandparents only spoke Spanish, but my parents did speak English. So most of my Spanish speaking was as a very young child. And then it started to fade. And I think that that's something that was greatly unfortunate. But I did see in school that you had a great split and between English and Spanish speakers and that people's writing proficiency really suffered if they were coming into the language with it not being native to them. And that there were not a lot of resources available then for learning the language other than just grammatical help. Uh, and that even when they did gain some fluency, it still was a huge hurdle for them to develop enough confidence to write with poise, uh, to write with the fullness of their intelligence. Uh, and I saw that even going into college. I started at a local college and then I transferred to UT Austin. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to UT Austin. This is a world-class world university. And then I went to Berkeley. And I still didn't see that kind of support where you could sit down with a student and tell them exactly what they were doing with their writing, what were the moves that were currently at play for them, and then what were the possibilities. And then I started to work with a professor who later became my co-founder, Don McQuaid, who had spent his life just studying what were these kinds of moves that students can make. How can you open them up to their own possibilities by responding in a particular way, by responding in a timely way? Getting that into my blood is really what made me think, okay, this is not such a vague uh, area of the humanities. This is not such an ad hoc thing. There are possibilities to really impact millions of students. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. A lot of businesses, too many, think of payments as a mechanical function. 
It just needs to work. But your payment solution can be an engine for growth. It can help up your conversion rates. It can help tap you into market growth. It can help allay security concerns that are limiting your customers' spending. And payments can be a way to provide new experiences to you customers. You want to grow your business? Rethink your payments. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. Hey everyone, I'm Maggie McGrath, a staff writer at Forbes magazine and your new host for a show called Forbes on Trump. Politicians are all talk, no action. I'll be speaking with the editors and writers who are reporting on the 45th president. We'll hear what they're finding out about his wealth, his business associates, and the ways in which he and his policies are affecting the economy, consumers, and all aspects of the business world. Somebody has to come out and tell it like it is. Along the way, we'll dive into Forbes archives, which contain decades of information that will add context to the current White House administration. So listen to this. Listen to this. That's Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. Subscribe now at iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and share. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. Well, then, uh, Matthew, picking up on your experience, can you tell us how non-native English writers benefit from WriteLab? Right now, the best benefits they get are in concision, in clarity, and in grammar. And I'll talk about concision and clarity because lots of tools have grammar. Um, In concision, it really is trying to help them with the idioms. One of the biggest problems that non-native learners have is getting the idioms right. And they will often use idioms redundantly, like a whole and entire. And then with clarity, it's about making sure that it's clear and story-like and, and fluent. I think that really that even beyond getting things correct, doing things correctly, it's about getting it, getting you to a level of fluency. My co-founder had this wonderful story about being in a French bar as a, as a young man. And he was just so focused on getting the French conjugations right that by the time he thought of the right word to use, the girl that he was talking to left um, <laughs> because he's just so focused on correctness and not thinking about fluency. That's your next uh, business, I think, right? The, uh, the intersection of, of dating and, uh, and improving your writing skills. It is very interesting to see what sorts of use cases people have come up with where people have asked about WriteLab. We have a lot of bloggers using WriteLab. Um, we have people in corporate settings, people doing sales using WriteLab. But an interesting one has been the online dating, which is, can you give me some kind of a score for, uh, for my OkCupid okay message? Um, can you let me know how how well this is gonna gonna go? Uh, and that I think that's that's a quite interesting use case. Matthew, a, I yeah. think we've struck gold. <laughs> Don't you? It, it, because listen, if I could just come over to your house and bring my uh, cell phone, we could go through all my text messages and we could solve all my relationships right there. <laughs> I mean, that's not a great use of your time, but I think as a, as a, as a beta sample, it's sort of interesting. It's a, it's what do you a very think? interesting use of my time. I'm not, getting, I'm not getting an enthusiastic response from you on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be interesting if you teamed up with the dating site and went through the – I mean, you'd have to be a semiotics major or something like that to, to really decipher w- w- what the hell people are talking about these days. Maybe so, yeah. What, what exactly does the, the, the different emojis mean? 
Exactly. What did she mean by high? (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't she ask a question about the weekend? Yeah, something like that. No? I think so. I think so many people now are using bots to kind of play a numbers game on these apps that, you know, if anything, you would be providing good advice for how to tweak those bots. Oh, like, is this a real person? Yeah, what do you mean? Exactly. Right, right, right. That their agencies are coming up to to push like rental services or other services on people on the dating sites. Exactly. So was, was entrepreneurship something that attracted you at a young age? I think so. I was, as I remember being three years old and taking food out of my parents' fridge and reselling it to them. Reselling the food to your parents? Yeah. Reselling the food to my parents. And I remember I had some butters, country crock, and I had the butter and, uh, upsell. I, uh, and my and my my father said, "Well, here you, I like that butter. Here you go." And he he had his hand and he put it on my hand and and uh, and then I said, "Well, here you go." And I I gave him my hand and I said, "If you want real butter, you got to give me real money." And I was three years old. Oh my gosh, a titan of industry. <laughs> well, I did have uh, so I did have a lot of those younger mercantile experiments, and I continued those throughout. High school for me, business though was more about uh, manufactured goods, and it was about what goods you could sell. The whole idea of a service industry, I mean, uh, it sort of uh, bamboozled me. I'd say it was just I was flabbergasted by it when I got into college, and I was more focused on writing. Um, writing was something that I had done as a young age. I would sneak into my parents' study, and I would take the computer in the middle of the night, and I would write stories for my friends. But I really didn't put the two together until necessity brought them together for me in teaching. Mm. Well, just to give you a sense of the difference between our business acumen, when I was young growing up in Canada, there was a great snowstorm that came in from Quebec. And I I papered the neighborhood with flyers that said the best uh, snow removal services offered. And I gave my home phone number. And so we woke (laughs) up with the the snow blanket of the streets. Our phone was off the hook. So I went out to take my first customer across the street. And my father came outside 20 minutes later. I was collapsed on the driveway. <laughs> I was 11 years old. And for the rest of the day, our phone was going off. And I did. I was frostbitten, and I had done half a driveway. And I think I was paid $15 to leave the driveway. But, uh, <laughs> so I think, I think you, you had a leg up on me. But that's why well, I'm here. You're there. I grew up in a warmer region. So. <laughs> that's, yeah. When, when did this idea hit you over the head what 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 was that moment where you you said okay this idea has legs this is an idea in the first place that i want to spend time with it was really when i saw my students how they responded to that experiment of giving them automatic feedback and it turns out that there's actually a huge market need for it um a lot of businesses have been trying to develop something of this kind for a while these are things that i learned afterwards and that it's actually a really ripe opportunity for this But I would say that for me, it was I saw resources around me to build something, to make a difference. And I always thought back to myself as a student, what would I have liked to have had? What could have made me feel more empowered as somebody that's getting a college education, as somebody that's going to participate as a citizen in this world? What's going to make me feel like I know exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it with my words? Um, so I would say that it was that social goal, it was that impact goal that really drove me. And it's a very happy coincidence that there is an, a tremendous market and business need for this. Um, one that, of course, we are pursuing so that we can have the greatest impact possible. 
Well, it's absolutely true. And you, you know, as I did go to university and you, you crave that kind of intimacy uh, and that relationship with the professor where you're able to get the cobwebs aside and, and uh, you know, not just be a number sitting in a row, but you get that office time and you can talk about the nuance of your work. Um, and it's, it, it sounds like you're really doing that. Where, where would you like to go that you aren't right now? Where would you like to go with Right Lab? So I would like to go into some of the specifics. So at, uh, specifics of corporate writing. So what's the next step? You got your college degree. Now you're at McKinsey. Now you're at Salesforce. Now you're at these places and you're writing. Um, what do you do with all of that practice and preparation you did in college? And what can accountability look like there? I've thought about what Write Lab for meetings could look like, where meetings are a place where people talk a lot, a lot of ideas are thrown around, and then the next time you have a meeting, there's a lot of redundancy. I've thought about a Write Lab that will keep track of all those topics and those promises. Maybe here's another politician accountability thing, but keep track of those promises. Who said that they would do what? And where are we on all of those agenda items to really make meetings not only a more efficient but a more collegial and a more transparent sort of activity? Again, uh, yet another reason for you to move to D.C. Uh, but <laughs> but listen, what is, on the business side, is Right Lab uh, profitable? So we just started selling in the late fall. Um, we're not profitable. We are venture backed. We recently closed around, uh, a funding, um, with some, some international investors and then some ed tech investors here. So we have, we have the runway to become profitable. Um, we started selling with some success, uh, in the late fall and then also closed these two large partnerships, which are, uh, which have high revenue potential. So that front's looking pretty good. But we have a lot of work to do in our direct sales to schools. How many employees do you do you have? We're still a team of five. A team of five. And what are the potential revenue streams that you see coming into Right Lab? So there are already three revenue streams that we consider pretty significant. The first is subscription model on the site. Second is our direct sales to schools. And the third is when other companies and these two large partnerships I mentioned are doing this. When when other companies will license our API so that they can provide right lab on their own platform. And what are what are some challenges that you're running into now? I mean, we talked about where you want to go. What are you bumping up against now um, as you as you get this off the ground? I think the the largest hurdle is how educators are thinking about integrating technology in their classrooms. Technology is becoming a set of formative tools that you can use in the classroom that can actually take the least interesting part of your job from you so you can focus on what, what really matters to you as a teacher. And I think educating the marketplace about those possibilities right now is our largest hurdle. And we're getting through that by generating the content that's appropriate for people so that they know exactly how to plug and play this in their classrooms, so that they know exactly how this interacts with the issues that they care about as teachers. What is the thing that you hear the most? What is the question that people ask you the most when you're presenting Write Lab for the first time? Does this cover the whole writing process? And the answer is no. Sometimes with people that means, oh, okay, well, I wanted to do everything. 
or I'm not interested. But most of the time, it's, okay, I'm relieved. This isn't just going to replace me. Right. That's the most common thing. And then we get into more of the nitty-gritties about what it can cover and what where it still needs to go, where it still can go. Well, you know, there's a great fear of automation replacing industry. Yeah, and I think what we hear so often and the thing that makes headlines is the kind of automation that is humanoid or is going re- to replace people and not the kind of technologies that will augment uh, augment human intelligence, augment our abilities, give us more time. Those are the kinds of things I think that I'm seeing all over the place, particularly in education. And those are things to really be excited about, things that will make you better at your job and make your overall experience of your job a lot more worthwhile. Thank you so much for, for talking with us. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to enjoy your conversation. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcastone.com. Everyone sells today. So how do you bring your best sales game every day? Simple. Listen to the Advanced Selling Podcast on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Bill Kasky. And I'm Brian Neal. Each week, we answer listener questions like, how do I compete against a cheap competitor? And Brian's favorite, because he always has an answer to this, how do I meet with a CEO when they won't even return my calls? The Advanced Selling Podcast is where the best go to get better. Listen Mondays on Podcast One and on iTunes. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.